1: Hello and welcome to Women of Balls, where I, Katie Ball, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today is a regular sight on television screens on both sides of the pond when there is a royal event, well, that is Windsor Castle or a TV studio. She began her career in journalism at the Hemel Hempster Gazette, but later moved to the Royal Beat for the Express. As she recalls, the editor offered her the job because you're called Camilla and you dress nicely. These days, as The Telegraph's associate editor, she has a wide-ranging brief covering both politics in Westminster and the royal family. My guest today is Camilla Tomney. Camilla, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. We tend to begin by asking if yours was a happy childhood, but you've spoken quite publicly about your mother's struggle of alcohol growing up.
0: Yes, although I would reflect on it and say that my childhood was a happy one, which might my- sound a bit surprising because i was brought up in a very loving environment and you know my dad was a gp and therefore we were comfortably off and i went to private school i did my older brothers my mother's alcoholism did of course cause tremendous upset among the family and indeed in my parents marriage which eventually they ended up getting divorced and subsequently to that i did live with my mother for a period by myself which was extremely difficult because she was then in the kind of complete grip of addiction And as a teenager trying to do her GCSEs and then her A-levels, that wasn't the happiest place to be. Having said that, I always felt my parents loved me and wanted the best for me and I think that's all a child can hope for even if, <laughs> as Philip Larkin once famously wrote sometimes your parents can F you up.
1: You've said uh, previously between GCSEs and A-levels I was living by myself as an alcoholic but does that actually mean that you focus more on study in a way? As yeah,
0: very much so. I kind of look back on that whole experience and actually if there's any silver lining to the dark cloud it's the fact that I decided not to go off the rails which was an option to me I guess and I was kind of hitting the pub underage and drinking quite a lot of the weekend I think as a form of escapism but to be fair because of the school I was at and the company I was keeping in the girlfriends that I had, I went to a single sex school, maybe that helped too. I really did channel my energies into my studies. And I think I probably ended up doing better than I might have done had I not been faced with those extreme circumstances at home. But in order to escape her at night, when she was at her most tricky to handle, I would obviously say, well, I've got homework to do and I need to go off and do my work. And then really did kind of bury myself in the book. So I think it proved to be my salvation.
1: And at that school, you mentioned it was a private school, you said you were quite an alpha girl. Does that mean you're all head girl material? No, I wasn't head head
0: girl, no. Do you know what? I was once asked with my friend Claire to show a new girl around the school and the headmistress described us as clever Claire and clumsy Camilla. So no, I wasn't one of the kind of shining lights of the academic scene there. I was pretty kind of average but what I was good at was drama And I kind of was the girl who would write the end of year entertainment, you know, type person. And I was quite good at debating, along with an extremely clever girl who was kind of quoting Kafka aged 11 while I was going, what are you talking about? I've only just come out of the famous five me and her were on a debating team and she was the kind of researcher and the facts woman and I was the front woman and I kind of thought oh actually maybe (laughs) maybe I could have a career of blaggery to a certain extent and I suppose all of that drama very much helped when it went to going into journalism not that I knew I'd start doing as much broadcasting as I now do but I suppose there's an element with which it kind of helped me to gain confidence I did a lot of sport at school and I was the younger sister to two older brothers who were alpha males so Being in a single sex school, I suppose there are kind of there are alpha girls that are involved in the sports teams and are generally kind of like I wasn't a girly girl interested in makeup and boys. No, I was interested in playing lacrosse, playing football against my brothers and yeah, putting on school plays. That doesn't sound too tragic.
1: You went to study law at Leeds University. So were you thinking you wanted to be a lawyer? Were you like, this would bring me great wealth? What were you yes, thinking? well,
0: yeah. obviously. I was thinking I was quite good at arguing. And my dad was a doctor and he kind of took me aside and said, you're not going to go into medicine, are you? I said, like, no, <laughs> no, dad, I'm not. He's like, yeah, I'm not sure that's the right fit for you. Probably wouldn't have the most patience or indeed great bedside manner. Plus, I was terrible at science and functionally enumerate when it came to maths. What's good at English, though, and languages? So I went and studied law because I did have this kind of, you know, Perry Mason thing going on and loved a courtroom drama and thought that my ability to communicate quite well in an adversarial setting, I suppose I thought I might be some female Rumpole of the Bailey. I then went and studied law, which I loved and was fascinating, and I'd recommend it as a degree to anyone. But the trouble is with going to university and doing law is that you only really get recruited by corporate law firms. So I was doing stints of work experience at, like, Allen & Overy and Clifford Chance, and with respect to people that work there oh my god it was mind-numbingly boring and there were beds downstairs at Clifford Chance and I was like "Why, why are there beds here and they were like yeah people stay overnight on deals and I thought "Oh, I don't really want to be staying overnight on a deal what I was fascinated by when I studied law was some of the cases themselves and then I was going back and looking on the library microfiche if anyone of a certain generation knows what microfiche is looking up all of the cuttings of how these stories were reported and then I thought God, I want to be the one reporting these stories. This is where it's really at. So I suppose I actually kind of went into journalism thinking I'd be a court reporter, started on a local paper, and then you just fall into what you fall into. And I remember leaving university, and I think my dad thought I was going to be a lawyer, and then I turned around to him and said, you know what, I think I want to be a journalist. And I was offered... A training contract at the Hemel Hempstead Gazette so I think the alternative was going on to Allen and Overy or wherever and earning 40 grand a year the Hemel Gazette offered me 10 grand a year so I said this to my dad I've still got the letter he wrote me because I had a discussion with him and he gave me this I don't know why he was sending me a letter but that's my dad for you he sent me this letter and he said oh I've had to think about this and I think you should become a journalist because one a it's what you want to do B, it's not as high a wage as you'd like, but they're giving you training. C, maybe you could ask them for some money towards your car and mileage. So I ended up doing what I wanted to do rather than what I should do. But I don't regret the law degree because it's like such a great thing to study. And
1: as you say, you're on your local paper, but you've touched on the fact it's not the highest earning job around. So to get your salary up, is it true that you just called up to Sunday Express and yes. asked for shifts?
0: Well, I was selling a few stories from the local environment into places like The Sun. A local family accidentally got locked in the freezer at McDonald's. I managed to sell that to The Sun for a couple of hundred quid, which was a fortune in those days. How did you find it out? I don't know. We just did it on the local paper. I did all sorts of stories for the local paper. A guide dog that went blind and its owner got lost in the Hempstead industrial estate. I left when Buntsfield exploded. Of course, that was the biggest story in the area for 20 years. But the good thing about being on local papers in those days is, I mean, you've got such great training, both theoretically but also practically on the job. We'd go down, if there was a murder, you'd be there with your notebook, as grisly as that sounds. It was almost just... Just before the days where the whole PR machine took over, I was still reporting when you could go up to the copper on the scene with your notebook and say, what's happened? And they wouldn't have to say, can you please call corporate communications? So that's the best training you can ever have. Yeah, I was moaning onto my husband about not earning enough money and I really need to get into the nationals. I think I was two years into the Gazette and had sort of qualified as a senior journalist because you take a load of exams while you're learning on the job and had got my 100 words a minute shorthand and he goes I'll oh, stop moaning and just phone these places phone up some newspapers and see if they've got any shifts and that was on Saturday morning I got out a Guardian media guide and they were all listed alphabetically so I just thought Express was first so I just phoned through it was Saturday morning at about nine or ten in the morning I said oh hi I'm Camilla I'm from a local paper I'm wondering if you've got any shifts and my future news editor didn't know that then James Murray said um yeah can you come in now I was like what So he goes, yeah, we're a bit short staff. come in now. And then I just turned up at their old office in Blackfriars. I remember being escorted up to the newsroom by a rather harangued features writer who for some reason was working on news and they didn't have a splash. They were like, we're in trouble, we don't have a splash. And Jim wanted to work up something about, I think it was OAPs revolting over an increase in their license fees or their council tax or something It's probably the latter classic express story classic express story it's like how can we splash this and it was just so fortuitous we'd done the very same story the week before and i had this letter from this police commissioner saying something like to the police if we're not careful we're going to get oaps rioting in the streets and it was a great line and it ended up being the splash and then they asked me to come back and then i ended up doing i think three or four shifts a week there left the local paper and then i got on staff And then in 2005, Charles and Camilla got married and we had a change in staffing and the editor, Martin Townsend, just called me in one day and said, you're called Camilla and you dress nicely. Would you like to cover the Royals? I was like, oh, I don't really know anything about the Royals. And then I thought, yeah, OK, that's probably quite a good beat so that's how that happened
1: and how did you find that because it's really interesting in the sense that most people just focus on one whereas what's notable about your career is you've been focusing on the royals and politics yes but from someone who did diary briefly is in the lack of access you sometimes get when you're writing about the royal family compared to politics yeah it's
0: quite striking to me at least I thought it was nuts when I came into politics because people are like bowling up to me and handing me stories on a plate, whereas you're having to fight for the crumbs of a royal environment that is adverse to any publicity at all, if it's not positive. And then I didn't, wasn't brought up in a particularly royalist family, but my parents both really loved Diana, Princess of Wales, and I remember her dying and sitting and watching the funeral, kind of glued to the telly with my dad. So I had some knowledge of them. It was pretty quiet. I had been on showbiz, and actually I was quite... Pleased to be out of showbiz because in 2005, when I got the royal gig, I also got married. And showbiz, as you'll know from doing diary, is like, yeah, go down to the embassy club and see if you can find whoever happens to be in Clover that week, try and get a line. And you're like, there till when I say a line, (laughs) a news line, wasn't involved in anything nefarious. So, and it was awful, like, going out and doing showbiz. And actually, the celebrities are at really nice, but the agents are usually horrible. And I I did diary gigs where I was, like, covering... I remember covering a Help the Ages event with Michael Parkinson and June Brown, Dot from EastEnders, and they had a row, and then I'm writing it up, and I'm thinking, is this really what I want to be doing with my life? Having said that, royals, I mean, what is it, really? Often I've been on jobs wondering what on earth we are doing, standing there watching royals. I mean, we went to the White House with the Queen in... 2007 and george bush and george w and like people are running across the weiss house lawn to get into the right spot to take a picture the press officer says you're running after an 85 year old woman what are you doing and you (laughs) you do look at yourself and think why but then as i always say i'm not a royalist i'm a realist and if there's an appetite for these stories we must write them so that's how i got into that and it was very quiet until kate middleton came onto the scene and then the whole thing exploded
1: and I suppose a few things that is interesting in the sense on a royal trip, like the one you mentioned, what are you doing? Because on a politics trip, obviously, um, you know, you're getting lots of briefings from, you know, if it's a trip with the Prime, Minister, Prime Minister's team, there's a press conference at the end. Is it mainly observational when you go on a trip yeah. like that for the Royals?
0: I mean, sometimes you can be on trips and not even be acknowledged with any eye contact at all. And other times you can go there and suddenly. So Charles and Camilla are very good. They always engage, particularly the Duchess, which is kind of ironic when you consider she was so vilified by the press. William and Kate have in the past had little receptions for the media while on tour and then you get to have a chat with them, which is always good to get some face time. I've been on jobs with Harry where he's been angry with us and ignored us and been on other jobs. It's interesting, we're recording this on the day that Barbados is being handed back and I remember being in Barbados with him and he was like... I was on the rotor and he kept on like beckoning me, Camilla, you need to hear this. I don't know what they were talking about, palm oil or something. I'm there with my notebook thinking, oh, he's being very friendly. So it's a bit of a hot and cold environment. Sometimes you can be on the back of the plane and a royal comes down for a chat. Sometimes they act as if you shouldn't even be there. And we have to also accept that a lot of royal coverage is about photography. I mean, often tours just get reduced to picture captions unless something really significant has been said or done in a speech. It's interesting you mentioned
1: parties by Kate and William because... The Duchess of Sussex spoke about these holiday parties and it created quite a stir online.
0: Well, it's weird. It's like, what happens is... No, I know. It's, it sounds odd, doesn't it? I've been to a number of these. So they sometimes happen on tours. They happened when the Cambridges had Prince George and she brought Prince George into their little apartment, like the working offices of Kensington Palace. And we're all standing around having a drink and saying hi to this baby, which is weird. It obviously happened after they got engaged... Oh, come and meet the couple. And I remember speaking to the Duchess about this extraordinary ring that she had, where she sort of said, yes, it was it was William's mother's, so it's very special. I said, yes, it is. And then you all stand around a little horseshoe. You'll be familiar yeah. with this, Katie, because it's the like donut. meeting the PM, the donut. And then what's... Imagine off- it's less v-
1: physically violent.
0: No, it is uh, physically no, it's- violent. It's really sharp-elbowed. And like what you're talking to a royal and the next thing, a rival just cuts in to your entire conversation. You also get this funny situation where you've got people... From from the BBC and The Guardian who pretend they're not interested in royalty at all and why are they, this is so beneath them. Why are they here? And the next thing, they're like angling for a conversation with these people. So yeah, but I sometimes think, why do we do that? We don't want to be compromised from a partiality point of view. We don't want to be friends with these people. To quote Giles Brandreth, when covering the royals, one should never mistake friendliness and friendship. They can be friendly, but we aren't their friends. But then how can we authentically write about what these people are actually like unless we've actually met them?
1: Now, you mentioned that obviously you began by covering Prince Charles, Duchess of Cornwall, and it has obviously changed a lot in that time, partly in terms of attention, as you say, a Duchess of Cambridge, that wedding. I remember being intern for Us Weekly at the time of the Ooh, Royal Wedding. With Omid
0: Scobie, perhaps. Yes. Yes so. <laughs> She's <laughs> nodding, everyone. Yeah, just a brief stint, but
1: obviously just watching it was interesting to see how differently an American publication covers it to a UK publication. Yeah. So they're interested in lots of little details, whereas I think you could say it's more of a positive way they tried to cover it. Yes. But going from that, obviously, then you have Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Do you think how royal journalists have been perceived has become more polarised? It feels as though, you know, particularly... And I wonder if so, at what point do you think that happened?
0: Yeah. I mean, I remember covering the inquest into Princess Diana and obviously all of the hacking stuff... That's a polarizing time because all journalists are tarred with the same brush. And people of my generation—I mean, I remember finding out about phone hacking was on that trip to America in 2007, where quite ironically, I was having some trouble accessing my voicemail from abroad, and we were all at dinner, and it was like, "Oh, Clive Goodman's been arrested. He's been phone hacking," and no word of a lie. I said, "Sorry, what's that?" And they were like, "Don't you know what phone hacking is?" I was like, "No." I didn't have any idea of that kind of stuff. Yes, I had a familiarity with this habit of some newspapers getting private investigators involved, but I worked at the Express Group, right? (laughs) Richard Desmond, bless him, wasn't really happy to pay journalists what they deserved, let alone external agents. But I would like to think that, just as I wouldn't look through somebody's private diary or search through their emails, that even if phone hacking had been an option to me, that I wouldn't have taken it. I mean, that's no way to get a story. So that was really polarising, you know, this idea that all journalists are scumbags. The Harry and Meghan thing's taken it to a new level because it's basically saying anybody that writes anything negative about Meghan is a racist. That's a whole new level of kind of tarring with a brush that obviously I don't agree with on account of the fact that I'm not a racist and neither are any of the colleagues that I've worked with in the press pack for years, which includes people of colour. So that's pretty offensive. Equally, I don't quite get what people think we're supposed to do. If Harry and Meghan speak to Oprah Winfrey for 90 minutes and make a series of quite damaging allegations towards the royal family, but equally, Meghan questioning a story that I have written, what am I then meant to say? Oh, well, because she said it, she must be believed. I don't care who says what. I mean, even if the Queen says something that she's found to be lying, then we're going to try and look for inconsistencies in that narrative. That doesn't make us bigoted or have a vendetta. Equally, if William and Kate, and people have very short memories, there was a huge amount of criticism of that couple when they first came into the Royal scene and they got married and there was a sense they were hiding away in Anglesey and not doing enough work on behalf of Queen and country. Huge amount of criticism levelled at Kate and her sister being Wisteria sisters and the mother being doors to manual. By the way, I didn't write any of these headlines myself, but my God, there is, as a woman, you could say something wrong with this vilification of royal women that's been happening since time in memoriam. But let's just be sensible here. Journalists probing and applying scrutiny to the claims made by royals. You know, perhaps there's a, the volume's been turned up by Harry and Meghan, and therefore the volume is turned up on them. The more you speak, the more you're going to provoke a reaction. I mean, a lot of their publicity that is self-promoted, they didn't need to go on Oprah. What did they expect everyone to do for them to go on Oprah for 90 minutes and everyone to believe them and ignore it? Meghan
1: Markle's publicly refuted, I think, one of the stories you wrote about a dispute over her wedding with the Duchess of Cambridge, Tears. When that happened, what's that like for you when you have someone so publicly, I mean, saying your story is wrong.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I had to get up in the middle of the night, obviously, to cover Oprah. We stayed in a hotel and then we went and it started and she makes that remark about getting married three days before the wedding. And I turned to my colleague and said, that's a good line. I wonder what Lambeth Palace says about that. And then, of course, it was like, that was the least of the lines, my God. It just kind of ramped up and ramped up. I wrote a snap analysis at the time, pretty much, I think, accurately summing up what the whole thing represented. I also made the point that, I have written subsequently I can't you know one, a journalist never discusses their sources but sort of the suggestion that that story originated at the palace and again we're filming this and tonight the BBC's second part of their documentary on the princes and the palace is coming out so it's going to be interesting what they say but this idea that this the palace briefed me this I find sort of laughable equally up uh, it was written by me in a big feature about is the sisterhood at breaking point in the features pages of the telegraph and it's a pretty nuanced piece if you go back in it saying these two women are very different there's been a few pinch points some of it's the duchess of sussex's fault and some of it's the duchess of cambridge's fault you know there's a perception that they haven't been welcoming enough the cambridges and that meghan has been made to feel like an outsider The bridesmaid dress fitting tears was well-sourced. It's been subsequently well-sourced. So what can I do but stand by that? It could have been the fact that Meghan also ended up in tears. The only other point I would make is, having covered the royal family since 2005 and worked in very close quarters with Prince Harry and knowing the fact that at any moment during the period between me reporting that, that November 2018, and them going on Oprah, March 2021, anyone him personally or any of his people could have phoned me to correct that story if they had wanted. I found it interesting that it was corrected on primetime TV.
1: But your editor had you back?
0: My editor had my back. People have this strange idea that we make it all up. Okay, well, that would make life really easy. Second of all, the more senior you get, the more careful you have to be that you are getting it right. Because look at the treatment. You get absolutely pilloried on Twitter and in the letters page of your newspaper and quite rightly so we've we've got to get it right so no am i there flying kites making stuff up no that's the frustrating thing about the twitter response you know actually we all go out of our way or okay i can only speak for me some people aren't you know not everybody in journalism is an angel by any stretch of the imagination but me personally i really do go out of my way to make sure that stuff i write is right because i know that people see me as an authority on this subject so i would be really inviting career suicide to start just getting everything wrong i mean that's just ridiculous and stupid
1: on social media you some people tend to look away or not even use it but you often actually at least sometimes will engage with i know it. i've kind it's of adopted
0: i've adopted more recently a non-engagement policy i did yeah. do some engaging and then i thought you can never win and i've discussed this with people on the right and people on the left and it's women lots of left-wing women say I'm just getting such abuse online it doesn't matter what I say you know I'm always wrong and you know I have been accused in the same day of being a far-right extremist and a socialist right that's literally the lunacy of the sewer that is social media so what's the point? I mean, also, I'm not on there for sycophantic reason. I'll only engage with people that are nice to me. I have some really great constructive discussions with people about royals and politics and the rest of it. If you're going to come on and abuse me and be personally insulting and, oh, by the way, bring my husband and children into it, and then on one hand I received a death threat to my website, which I've now had to take down the facility for people to contact me, then I get a load of people on Twitter saying I've made the death threat up. Like I've got time for that, funny enough. And it was because it wasn't investigated by the Met Police because I don't live in London. I won't say which constabulary is still investigating it because I don't want to expose where I live. Or it. That's the other thing. I've had to take all of these security measures to make sure that some nap bag doesn't try and, you know, target me at home. I've had a series of letters investigating this particular death threat and a particular email address, which is still ongoing. I literally only had a letter on Friday. But, you know, that's kind of classic shooting the messenger and the other ironic thing about it is they're in the Harry and Meghan camp talking about balance. Well, there's nothing balanced about going on a podcast or going on Oprah, making a load of accusations and offering no right of reply. At any point I have to write something about Harry and Meghan, we go straight to their people in LA and say, this is what I've heard. What's your response? And interestingly, I've done major long reads on the whole situation. And so far, none of them have elicited a legal complaint. Touchwood. There's still time. Shillings is always shillings is always ready.
1: You mentioned threats you've received. I just wondered. we were talking about how you obviously write political pieces. You've also written opinion pieces on Brexit, and you write, cover the royals. Do you feel these threats are specifically to do the royals or is there aggression across the board? I just wonder what might get that type of response there as particular. Just
0: just breathing is enough. Yeah, okay. To fine. get a just response. Doing anything. Like some people are just like so nasty, like what's the point? I mean, I don't know. I sometimes look at some of the trolling and just think what is wrong with you? So literally just breathing is enough to get abuse from certain quarters. I've downloaded this great app called Block Party, which I recommend to anyone listening, which basically filters out anybody who doesn't have a profile picture or appears anonymous or has less than 100 followers. All of the biggest freak, of course, are friendless keyboard warriors, you know, probably, you know, very upset that they're not getting anywhere on Tinder. So what can you do? And there's no point engaging with people who are just spewing hatred. I mean, It didn't matter if you were the angel gabriel they'd still find a problem with your wings it's the end of egg accounts yes exactly
1: (laughs) now how do you juggle the political reporting and the royal reporting i mean as in i find it complicated enough just covering a few parties so do you have days where you do one mm. more than the other? Do you spend the morning speaking to royal sources and then switch? Or does it just no, become it's a bit just effortlessly?
0: A it's like a hodgepodge. So, like, I keep on seeing the people that I see and speaking to my the people that I speak to on a kind of regular basis anyway. I'm also trying to tee stuff up for the magazine. Like, my role is kind of overview, analysis, exclusive stories and interviews. And that actually requires quite a lot of time out of the office, just teeing things up or... Getting closer to people to see that they'll trust you to kind of give you the stories that you want to get into the paper and the mag. I've also got the LBC thing, which is on a Sunday afternoon. That's a completely different thing entirely, but it's a different discipline doing radio. That's the other thing, the TV stuff. I kind of thought it would be a good idea to have a finger in the TV, radio and newspaper pie, because like all journalists of my generation... It comes with a degree of insecurity, and you'll understand this. You know, this idea that you're only as good as your last story, and that you could be everyone is dispensable in journalism. There's always going to be somebody queuing up to write the stories that you're writing. Experience counts for a great deal because of contact building and this ability to be able to say to somebody like me or one of my senior colleagues, you know, some catastrophe happens, who's the safest pair of hands at the paper? Right, get them to write it. Brilliant. And also it's just dictated by the agenda. Like today, it's a massive story on COVID. Health and science are largely doing that and the lobby team. There's a narrative around Ghislaine Maxwell. America's dealing with that, although I might be brought in if we get a good kind of, somebody wants a colour piece written about how she's been in court. We've got Prince Charles over in Barbados. We've got the Royal Correspondent out there. But again, I might have to do some, what does this mean for the future of the Commonwealth? So I'm kind of at the beck and call of the desk. It's reactive, but it's largely proactive. This is what I've got. Do we want this type stuff?
1: Now, just a few final things. I just wondered, um, you obviously spent a long stint at the Express, now you're at the Telegraph. And I just wondered, from your perspective, how has the industry changed from when you first started? Particularly when you probably first at the Express, it was probably the time when people would expect to be much more male-dominated.
0: Yeah, I never really felt it was... Very male-dominated. I had an editor who I've already mentioned, Martin Townsend, who was a very key and keen promoter of women. So some of the women who worked under him, Caroline Wheeler, Julia Hartley Brewer, me, Lucy Johnson, Kirsty Buchanan, who went off to work for Number 10. I think they did a poll, actually, Press Gazette, and they found out that the Sunday Express had got more front pages written by women than any other newspaper in the industry. So I didn't ever feel any gender bias, really. I mean, there is this sense that you look at the editors and they're all largely male because they've got a wife at home. I mean, it's quite difficult to be in this job and have three kids. Lots of women either go down to three days a week or they go into features because they're not on breaking news. It's quite exhausting to be on breaking news and have the kids because anything can happen at any given time and suddenly your holiday plans are shot to pieces and you can't make the end-of-year nativity. I try and get the balance right. With a degree of seniority comes some autonomy. I don't have the desk ringing me like they did at the Sunday Express, asking me where I am every minute of the day. I'm like, well, who cares where I am? It's all about output. I also do a column that facilitates me working from home on a Thursday, Friday. So I'm planning it and writing it in peace and quiet without being bothered by the desk. So how has newspapers changed I don't want to be down on the youth of today because we've got some really good young journalists coming into the industry and we've got the internship and I mentor some of the younger journalists as well, which is fantastic. But I don't know whether the... I think people's lifestyles have changed and I don't know whether there's the hunger there that we had this kind of complete willingness to have our lives turned upside down, particularly on a Sunday paper. I always used to say the mentality on the Sunday paper is you could just offer the best exclusive on earth or I've got the Queen caught in a gambling sting I'm just literally make this up on sort and the response from the editor would be that's great what else have you got it's like oh right and then Friday night spent on doorsteps like oh can you just give it another hour and we would willingly do all this I mean just absolute chaos for 10-15 years I don't know whether the younger lot have got the appetite for it which worries me I was a bit worried about people editing themselves for Twitter and actually to be in journalism these days you need a lot of courage to be able to report on things and not fear reprisals simply because, you know, oh, I've done an interview with the LGB Alliance, therefore I am a TERF. No, I'm speaking to the LGB Alliance because you're saying they're TERFs, so let's just find out if they are. You know, a number of younger people have said, oh, I don't know about going into this because I just don't want to have my life ruined. And from my perspective, well, it's all right for me. Bridesmaid gate happens and my editor's got my back. Can the same be said for a journalist who's only been in it for two years, happens to get a great scoop? Are they going to be supported or are they going to be cancelled? So the industry's changed in that regard. And also, you know, Sunday papers, you're kind of working on stories all week and then you run them on a Saturday. That's changed now. We're in a 24-hour news cycle. There's so much more churn. And a lot of the younger journalists get sucked into churn. I have to say to people in the lobby... OK, that's great, but is this worth it? Quality over quantity. Go and meet people for lunch. Get some stories that other people haven't got rather than, you know, writing up the opening of an envelope. What's in the bloody envelope? But again, that's difficult because there's this salacious appetite, particularly with a digital-first organisation like The Telegraph. that I means there's just so much to write and so much to cover.
1: Yeah, and I think with the pace of it online, there can be... And you can see why some of the big stories, particularly in politics, do come from social media, if you think about Ed Miliband and the Two Kitchens. Yes, <laughs> um, yes. But there also has to be a point when you step away from that and you'll start to work out where you're going to get your own stories. Quite,
0: but also I can't bear that, oh, it's a story because somebody on Twitter thinks it's a story. I mean, I'm the victim of this, bless them. So the Express Online, I'll go and say something pretty anodyne about the royal family on this morning, and suddenly it's a story because somebody, you know, Katie in Bogner. Says, oh, I don't think Camilla, Tom- oh, I don't, I don't like the way she's expressed herself about Meghan. Oh, Camilla, Tomney slammed for royal coverage. What? And if they're doing it about me, I mean, who literally who cares? That often happens, doesn't it? Oh, someone said something completely innocuous. Someone's taken offence, and it's a story. I mean, that's yeah, I've, that's I've, shoddy I've, I've, I've journalism have you what yeah. did you get caught I was out actually,
1: for to be honest it was more like I was trying to be slightly dry on used- it was during Brexit and I said something about Theresa May and I just said you know if last week was bad next week you know ninth circle of hell type thing. Yes. and then obviously they just took and this is my own fad for saying it it obviously just took me completely at my word and it was yeah. senior commentator predicts that Theresa May is about to enter the ninth circle of hell <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my god this is also, this makes it me there's a good story. It's a great story, and we admire that headline writer. But the other thing is, this idea about... That's why I don't like this homogenised media. All right, hang on a minute. We've got people publishing with impunity online, right? A lot of it total nonsense, defamatory, unregulated, claptrap. And people think that mainstream journalists are the problem here. Sorry, I can't just make a load of crap up or defame people because I'll actually be sued. If only the same could be said for the people on Twitter who just say whatever the hell they like in the name of some kind of like, you know, that they're freedom fighters. It's just total nonsense. Just final two questions. First
1: is, I think after Brexit happened, obviously a really turbulent period in UK politics, a lot of figures in the lobby at least think that the majority, though things are never too calm, I think, when Boris Johnson is prime minister, for mm. a slightly more stable period. But for you and you you know, across a few briefs, and particular the royal brief, I wonder if you think actually the next few years could be even busier for you. Lots of questions about the future of the monarchy.
0: I thought that we came out of 2019 thinking, oh, we'd had this extraordinarily insane period i mean it's been insane i don't want to get out the world's smallest violins for journalists but from 15 to 19 i mean it was like work i've never known in my life like you know overnighting talk about clifford chance we were all sleeping overnight at some points and so we came into 2020 thinking it's all going to be you know much calmer and go back to some semblance of normality when it comes to working life then obviously makes it happened And then COVID happened. And you're right. The buzzword in palace circles now is transition. And we don't like to talk about it because we don't want to be disrespectful to the Queen. She's had some health issues lately, although I put them more down to mobility issues than health issues. I think she's still in pretty fine fettle, but for her knees and her back and all of the other things that plague a 95-year-old. But yeah, that's going to be the biggest story of my career. The biggest story of my career is yet to come. And it will be covering... The accession and the coronation and one of the biggest stories has already happened there was quite a long period of sort of worrying about the Duke of Edinburgh and where we would be to cover that and could we go on holiday in case something happened to him which again sounds morbid and it's a first world problem right but from an occupational point of view yeah of course these things are always in the back of your mind so yeah that's the biggest thing that's that I'm certainly going to be covering Johnson and politics well yeah we keep a watching brief on that this is the thing you know I work on The Telegraph, you know, I'm one of the people that writes the front-page story on the night of the election, you know, this absolute extraordinary result of two halves, particularly for Telegraph readers, (laughs) the elevation of Johnson and the evisceration of Jeremy Corbyn. It's like catnip for The Telegraph. But then subsequently I've found myself writing pretty negative things about him and the government. That won't last forever. If they do great things, we'll write it up. Some of the stuff has been a bit more complimentary, but we are in turbulent times. But then we mustn't grumble. Boris Johnson's good for copy... And I've just come from a lunch where he's done a pretty good speech where it's got a few lines in it I've sent to the lobby. So we can't complain that politics, you know, lacks colour right now. There's all sorts of things going down, and actually it keeps us in clover.
1: And then the final thing is something I ask everyone on this podcast, which yeah. is just what is the worst advice you've ever been given? with board bored of good advice.
0: Somebody sort of early on said in order to kind of gain a bigger profile that I should work for nothing like do stuff for the BBC and others for nothing because it's the BBC and then I sort of thought about that I thought no absolutely not I must, ins- <laughs> must insist that I'm paid for this stuff from the very beginning and you know what? Well, that is a really bad advice to journalists this idea that you should just work for free we sometimes get it with comments on the Telegraph oh this is behind a paywall what an aberration Well, we're not the public service broadcaster stroke media outlet, and we've got journalists to pay. So when I hear younger journalists being told that they're being told, well, you can just write this and we won't pay you because it's going to be good for your career, I would say the best thing for your career really is to be paid for your work and don't sell yourself short. Good advice. Thank you, Camilla, and thank you for listening.